Speaking of oceans, what did the ocean say to the beach? I warn you, this is just an old grandpa joke. She didn't say anything, she just waved. I hear the groans. But it also reminds me that humor, however weird it might be, lives alongside violence that breaks out in the world as we know it in Ukraine as we speak. So on this sobering day affecting the whole world, we are reminded again that we live in relative peace here in these United States alongside the violence of Ukraine and other places. May the peace of Christ be found in Ukraine. And may the peace of Christ be with you. We now turn to an unveiled faith. I think most of us enjoy a good story. A narrative that captures our imaginations, our thoughts, our hearts, our interests, emotions, and intellect, and so on. They take us beyond ourselves, don't they? To places maybe we have traveled or haven't traveled, either geographically or in our hearts. I recently finished one such historical novel, Before We Were Yours, by Lisa Wingate. It took me to the historic Tennessee Children's Home Society Orphanage, set in 1939 Memphis, Tennessee, along the mighty Mississippi. It tells the gripping, heartbreaking, cruel story of the Tennessee Children's Home Society, an institution filled with all kinds of abuse, fear, and threats, veiled and unveiled. Children are literally cabinet taken over a 20-year period, often from poor river shanty families, over 5,000 in 20 years. How is this possible? The director illegally offers them, her name is Georgia Tan, and you can Google her name. She offers them for adoption with false names and birth certificates to wealthy families who want to have children or who want to replace a deceased child. And the money exchanged is both outrageous and criminal. Closed in 1960, it is not to be confused with modern-day Tennessee children's home. This unthinkable activity was possible because it was veiled from the public. And fear of the almighty director kept the children and employees quiet on the inside. Our Gospels are also narratives, stories of Jesus' encounters with people and situations of all kind. But not so with Paul's writings. More likely, in Paul's writings, we find argument, lines of words that defend the Gospel, that make a theological and moral persuasive case for Jesus and those following Jesus. However, however, behind Paul's writings there are what? There are stories. 
There are stories behind them. They're not just writings on their own. And we turn to two such stories briefly. In the Exodus 34 narrative, Moses is the bridge between God and the people as he descends from Mount Sinai with the second copy of the Ten Commandments. And I say second because he broke the first copy, Moses did, coming down the mountain, actually came down the mountain the first time in that golden calf incident. And what is striking to us in this text, which Paul alludes to, is Moses' shining face. Shining because he has just spoken with God. And it, it shows. And people are afraid to come near him, to look at him. And after some reassurance, the people gather around, and Moses once again shares these Ten Commandments. But the pattern goes over and over. When he's talking with the people, he covers his face because the people cannot bear to see the glory of God in his face. When he goes back to talk to God, he takes the veil off. Seems very odd to me as I read this in Exodus. And I asked myself, what am I missing in this conversation, in this dialogue, that the glory of God on Moses' face is not a comfort to these people, rather a source of terror. As we look at the text, we begin to understand the terror of the people in the context of that day, as they understood a holy, just, unique, moral, and righteous divine. The people understand they will never, ever, ever measure up to this transcendent God. Simply put, getting near to God is terrifying, as is the shining face of Moses. The other narrative comes from our Luke 9 text, where on this Transfiguration Sunday, you might guess what's going on. There's also a shining face in this story when three disciples ascend a mountain with Jesus. And as Jesus is praying, his face changes. It begins to shine. His clothes are a dazzling white. And they see Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter, James, and John not only witness the glory of God, they want to preserve this experience, not cover it up. They don't want to hide from this shining glory. And these contrasting stories give a little bit of light to what Paul's getting at in 2 Corinthians. So the question I ask myself, what has happened at Corinth for Paul to make this case? What has happened? We as readers are a bit handicapped in that we really don't know the whole backstory, do we? Well, by the time Paul addresses the church in Corinth, the fear of the glory of Moses is an unknown story to Christians of a Greek background. To those of Jewish faith in Corinth, it's a lingering source of fear for some. Fear veiled, or rather faith that is veiled in fear. We might recall that in Greek mythology, fear is a way for the gods to control the people, to manipulate them. And the Greek-speaking people would understand that. And Corinth itself is heavily influenced by Greek culture and thought. And so Paul writes that a veil is still presently covering some people's minds in their understanding of life with our creator God. 
And he writes in verse 15, Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. Paul really, really wants people to understand that the law of God be understood in the light of Christ. A way of relating to this unique moral rightness of God without fear, without veils. Paul wants the Corinthian church to be aware of the disciples' experience. When they traveled around with Jesus for three years, they saw God clearly in the face of Jesus, with whom they shared these everyday events. So for them and for us, Jesus is the accessible glory of God, not veiled by terror, but one where we can walk with the light of God. So with this transfigured Jesus, the veil is removed when one turns to the Lord, is what Paul says. There's no need to prove ourselves that we are good enough because we're never good enough, but are unconditionally loved and forgiven, as Paul writes in another letter, while we were yet sinners. There's one experience in the church, and I'm speaking of the Mennonite church, Part of this experience goes back years. Some of you may have experienced this where Communion Sunday was preceded by a service called Preparatory Service. Some of you are nodding. I did not myself experience this growing up, but I lived around it and with it in other churches. And the point was you would have it, this service to prepare yourself to be made right or ready to receive communion. And so the preparatory service would be, in effect, a, a time to ask yourselves, am I worthy to receive the bread and the cup? And there, you can look it up. There are various ways this was played out. Crunch, contrast that to the new covenant with Jesus where we are all welcome to the table of communion not because we are worthy, but because the bread and cup are symbols of God's spirit and God's spirit activity that frees us all from the veils that blind us. And this, my friends, is unveiled faith. Therapists Jet Saris and Marlena Lyons write in their experience, to reach that unveiled part of ourselves that is deep enough to express the most profound and untamed aspects of our being means learning how to love and be loving, be loved by others and by God without defenses and obstructions. She goes, they go on. It means cultivating the capacity to be emotionally present even when we feel exposed or vulnerable learning to relinquish the many strategies we have employed to feel safe and in control, and finding the courage to love without guarantees or requirements. I think we all have some strategies to do this, to prevent uh, this full love of God from coming, uh, making it to make us feel safe uh, and in control. I know I do. But despite what we sometimes fear, they write on. Saris and Lyons are clear that true intimacy with God leads to greater freedom to be who we are, not a loss of identity. And ultimately, intimacy is about the freedom to be ourselves. To be ourselves. 
And true emotional freedom means no longer needing confirmation, agreement, validation from someone else to know that we are basically a good person, flawed as we are. So as Paul would have us summarize this, then and now it's possible to go around with our faith in God veiled in a cloud of fear. I think it still happens. But thanks be to God. Through Jesus, we are free to approach God, ourselves, and our worn, torn world without fear, with all who we are and have been in the past. And I love how Paul sums this up. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we can act with great boldness. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at God's glory. But when one turns to the Lord, Paul continues in 16 and 17, the veil is removed. And now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And quoting chapter 3, 1 and 2, therefore we do not lose heart. Let's not lose heart, folks. Let's not lose heart. Because we have renounced the shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or to falsify God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everybody in the sight of God. End of verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3. And Paul names this unveiled faith. He calls it a treasure in clay jars later on in chapter 4. Now, that's good news, and it indeed is the word of the Lord for us today. Amen.